Hebrews chapter 3, the book of Hebrews chapter 3 this morning, you can turn there in the Word of God. It's good to see the Reverend Wagner back from his preaching tour in Northern Ireland. I'm glad that he returned home safely. I trust it was a fruitful time. Didn't watch on on one of the meetings in Balamina. Looked to be a tremendous turnout there. It's encouraging to see the hunger for the Word of God. Hebrews chapter 3 is where we are this morning. We hope, with the Lord's help, to finish off this chapter. I'm going to take time to read all of the chapter just to get the, the flow and sense of it again. So let us hear the word of the Lord, Hebrews 3, verse 1. Wherefore, holy brethren, partakers of the heavenly calling, consider the apostle and high priest of our profession, Christ Jesus, who was faithful to him that appointed him, as also Moses was faithful in all his house. For this man was counted worthy of more glory than Moses, inasmuch as he who hath builded the house hath more honor than the house. For every house is builded by some man, but he that built all things is God. And Moses verily was faithful in all his house as a servant for a testimony of those things which were to be spoken after. But Christ is a son over his own house, whose house are we, if we hold fast the confidence and the rejoicing of the hope firm unto the end. Wherefore, as the Holy Ghost saith, today, if you will hear his voice, harden not your hearts as in the provocation in the day of temptation in the wilderness, when your fathers tempted me, proved me, and saw my works forty years. Wherefore, I was grieved with that generation, and said, They do always err in their heart, and they have not known my ways. So I swear in my wrath, they shall not enter into my rest. Take heed, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief and departing from the living God. But exhort one another daily, while it is called today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. For we are made partakers of Christ, if we hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast unto the end. While it is said, Today, if you will hear his voice, harden not your hearts, as in the provocation. For some, when they had heard, did provoke, howbeit not all that came out of Egypt by Moses. But with whom was he grieved forty years? Was it not with them that had sinned, whose carcasses fell in the wilderness? And to whom swear he that they should not enter into his rest, but to them that believe not? So we see that they could not enter in because of unbelief. Amen. I trust that God will bless his word to us this morning. Would you pray with me, please, for his help as we look at the word and seek the Lord for his guidance through the passage today. Lord, we are thankful for the standing that we have. The standing is such that we do ask the question, where does this fear and unbelief come from? Why is it that we would doubt the living God? Why is it that we would question what Thou has accomplished? And yet we do. At times we go through seasons of spiritual concern about whether or not we're saved or we wonder whether or not Christ is sufficient or 
we have all sorts of doubts and the devil has his way of deceiving and leading us into all manner of questions that are unprofitable. We pray that this morning, should there be a doubting soul, that that doubt would be uh, removed, that there would be, where there is an absence of faith, a strengthening of it, that there would be a putting in of true faith that seizes and rests on Christ, where it is weak, that it would be strengthened, where it is absent, it would be brought to existence. God, that you would be merciful. We need thee, O God, to do a work that no man can do. We, we, we simply can't do it. We can't generate the miracle that we need in our hearts. So come and use the means as appointed. Use the Word and by the Spirit stir our souls to rest in Jesus Christ. Should there be some that are falling away, some that are nearing spiritual destruction, capture them this morning. Get their attention and draw them into the arms of Jesus. So give us the fullness of Thy Spirit promised to us by Christ and extend Thy kingdom through the means of the preaching of the Word, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. No external cause has brought me greater discouragement about the Christian ministry than the things that I have seen within the Christian ministry in my time of being being a preacher. We all have our doubts and questions at times, and I have to say that watching the rise and fall of wolves within evangelical Christianity perhaps has caused me to question my desire for the ministry more than anything else. There are times when I have seen things and heard of things that are so grieving, this thought comes into my mind that no honest man would wish to be called a pastor if these kind of people are pastors in the church. You see and you hear what they get up to, adultery, pedophilia, embezzlement, drunkenness, drug abuse, lies, covering up wickedness, so on and so forth. It's, it's endless. And it comes through almost on a weekly basis. And I'm not talking about, you know, you could discuss the Roman Catholic Church and their issues with the priesthood. I'm not even delving into that. I'm dealing with those that call themselves evangelical. I'm not dealing with liberal churches. I'm talking about those that would say we are Bible-believing. Watching that, seeing that, there's a sense, and I know no doubt the devil plays a part in it, there's a sense in which the filth of it feels like it attaches to the vocation itself. And there's this inner desire, just, just distance yourself from it. If these are the kind of men that are in ministry, why would you want to be in that kind of a role? You might think that's silly thoughts, but those are the kind of things that go in. And I say it is the, the most challenging, of, of, of what I can remember, the most challenging questioning of ministry that I have ever faced up to this point. Yeah, you deal with difficulties in the ministry, but none, none have caused me to question whether I want to continue as a minister like those things. And yet, as challenging as that may be to the soul, as you see all that goes on, the biggest issue I face has nothing to do with that. The biggest issue I face is the issue of my own heart. 
This is true of me. It is true of you. However bad our circumstances, however difficult the things that we are dealing with may feel to be, the reason, the greatest enemy to our souls is our own heart. Your heart for you, my heart for me. The greatest challenge you will face until your dying breath is the challenge of keeping your own heart. Keep that in mind. When you look at things, and maybe you have the same experience where you you look at the church and there are things about the professing church that discourage you or in some way cause you to feel like you just don't want to try or be bothered, remember, those, those things are not the greatest challenge of your life. Your own heart is always the greatest challenge you will face. And if you're going to remain a faithful follower of Christ, you must prioritize the keeping of your own heart with diligence. It is not for nothing that the elders, the Ephesian elders, Paul speaks to and addresses in Acts 20 and says, first to them, now they're, they're, they're overseers of the flock, but he says, first, take heed to yourselves and to the flock. The verses that we're looking at this morning remind us of this matter of the heart and being very cautious as to our hearts. And as we look at verses 12 through to the end of the passage with the Lord's help, I've titled this message, Remedies for Unbelief. Remedies for Unbelief, because as the apostle begins to drive home the warning, he makes mention of of really a number of things that are designed to help you understand how to deal with this threat. And it is. It's an imminent threat. Obviously, within the context of the epistle, it was very clear to the apostle that there was a danger of drifting from Christ within many of those that he addressed. But it is always a problem, though the context may change for each of us. So as we look at remedies for unbelief, I want you to note with me, first of all, self-examination. There is here self-examination. And the Lord would have us engage in self-examination as a tool, as a help to us. Verse 12, Take heed, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. This text notes a number of, thing for, number of things for us. First of all, this is an activity for all professing Christians. Take heed, brethren. Take heed. In other words, be careful, brethren. He's not looking at the world. He's not looking at those who make no claim to be Christians. He is addressing those within the body of Christ, within the visible community. He condescends even being aware of some of the things they're doing and the drifting that already exists in their lives, and he still calls them brethren. In doing so then, this is an activity, this aspect of self-examination, this, this take care and what he is calling us to look at, the evil heart of unbelief that causes us to depart from the living God. He is calling us to examine yourself. You who are in the church is an activity for all professing 
Christians. Calling them brethren pulls us in this morning. It helps us realize that this is an activity for all that say they are believers. Now, again, we, we step back and we, I just want to put in a cautionary note. We can be too introspective. We can fall into a trap where we're constantly looking to ourselves and we're looking at our hearts and examining and being scrutinizing every aspect of our living and where we're coming up short or perhaps even where we imagine that we're succeeding. And we're constantly doing this internal look and that can certainly be unhelpful. But to go, to swing the pendulum the other way and say that the Christian never need examine himself is clearly false given this passage and many others that we find in the Word of God. You see, the reality is that there are many reasons why someone might profess to be a believer in Jesus Christ. All sorts of reasons. Now, you imagine we're all saying the same thing and believing the same thing and our reasons are all the same, but they are not. Some may profess faith in Christ to please their parents. They are different children. Some children like to buck against their parents. Others like to comply and please them. Often you will have the same, in the same the two types in the same household where in some ways even you'll find where there may be rebellious children, there's one child that is even more determined to comply because they feel this weight, like I'm the only one listening to my parents. And so they become almost, it's like their life goal to please their parents. They're constantly seeking to please them in any way that they can. They may choose to be Christians or profess faith in Christ to fit in with their friends. That's what their friends are doing. They're in church. They profess faith in Christ. They want to fit in. They may do it to eliminate the shame of being an unbeliever among believers. The environment in which you're in is predominantly Christian, and so you adopt a, a kind of thought of being a believer. This happens, this happens in all sorts of circumstances, but it is certainly a temptation whenever people move from one nation to another. And endeavoring to integrate into another nation, they find those of their, of their own kindred, let's say, and in, in, an, in an effort to try and advance as quickly in a foreign land, surround yourself with a community. And one of the easiest ways to surround yourself with lots of people who will watch out for you, help you find jobs, help you find a place to live, is the church. And so it can be tempting for, say, a Chinese person to come into America and find the Chinese church where, there, they, they, they get all these connections. And so they, they have this outward form of Christianity and they've, they've never really come to know Jesus Christ. That's just one example in ways which that might work itself out. Some may profess to be a believer to win the affections of another Christian, common among young people who desire marriage and get their, find at their workplace there's a Christian girl and you take a liking to her, but she's a Christian, she's devout, and then, you know, she asks you to go to church, you get talking, you go to church, you, you make some profession, but in, in the heart there is this desire really to, to please her, to obtain her. There can be sentimental reasons. Respect for ancestry. I'm a Christian because this is what my forefathers were. A yearning to break an addiction. So because of the addiction, you're crying out for any possible way of help. Maybe Jesus will help me with my addiction. 
Fear of hell, desire for heaven, a fascination with Christian doctrine. It goes on and on. These are reasons, poor reasons, for calling yourself a Christian. You think of the Israelites, the context of this passage that brings us into the wilderness. Those that come into the wilderness, they had come out of Egypt and they had all participated in the first Passover. Why were they participating in the Passover? Well, because the Lord had warned them that when I see the blood, I will pass over you rather than the judgment of death coming to your household. Well, that's a motivating factor. And they would begin to think to themselves, well, well, let's, let's, let's engage in this. Well, everyone else is doing it as well, so you can see all your neighbors doing it, and you feel kind of drawn into it, so everyone falls into that. But, but, but there, isn't, there isn't the real heart there, the real love and appreciation for what it signifies of the one it points to, of the sacrifice of the Messiah, and so on. Those things are not filling your heart. And those within the audience of the apostles addressing is, is, is the same. You, you can see how an apostle comes into the city. They're in a synagogue. These are Hebrews, so obviously they'd be in a synagogue. And he begins preaching, the Messiah has come. The Messiah has come. And there would be an appeal because their entire lives have been, have been shaped by this, this promise being fulfilled. And so with that, there's a sense of, this is, this, is, this is great. This is great. I live in the day when the Messiah has come. And this novelty to go and embrace that and profess faith in that. But you do so, perhaps with the thought that all Jews are going to do the same. They're all go- Obviously, we're all going to do this. You, you imagine that everyone else is going to fall into line and respond to the apostolic message the same way you feel you should respond. But time passes, and you find out that not only do they not respond, but as time passes, they become even more hardened against it. And as the months and the years roll by, they become actually keenly desirous to persecute those who have accepted the message. Well, now you begin to weigh up the cost of professing faith in Jesus Christ. See, this is, this is what's going on here and it's what goes on today. We often do not know the real reason why someone else is sitting in church. Scan your eye across the congregation. You really don't know. You don't know really why the other person is there. But you don't have to be worried so much about that. Predominantly, you have to be worried about your own heart. Why are you here? Why are you gathered with the saints? And so, this is how he begins here in the portion that we look at. Take heed, brethren. Take heed. This, is, this, this, this business of examination that he's about to get to is something for you all. It is right for you. Even as we've already addressed some matters, ask yourself the question, why am I here? Why do I profess faith in Jesus Christ? This is also an aid for all professing Christians. It's not just an activity for all professing Christians. It is an aid. It is an aid. This idea of taking heed, of being careful, of Christians 
recognizing their need to, to just stop and pause and look at themselves is an aid for all professing Christians. First, it helps discern the heart. Lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief. It helps discern the heart. And I want you to see what he's saying there. Lest there be in any of you. No one gets to escape the broad application. No one gets to say, I have graduated from self-examination. He's calling us to be careful. And it applies to us all. An evil heart of unbelief. This puts us in the category of the great sin of the children of Israel that went through the wilderness, that first generation. This was what was, this was their problem. They had an evil heart of unbelief. When you read through Numbers 14, verse 27, God says to Moses and Aaron, How long shall I bear with this evil congregation which murmur against me? This evil, but what was so evil about them? They murmured, yes. They questioned God. They constantly doubted his, his, whether he would provide and so on and so forth. But, but you get it summarized in Deuteronomy 1 when Moses rehearses the events of Kadesh Barnea in Deuteronomy 132. He says, yet in this thing ye did not believe the Lord your God. That was the fundamental problem. He did not believe the Lord your God. He says, go in, take the land, go on. And they begin to question, they begin to doubt. And when they send forth the spies, they think maybe that might help. The spies go in. And ten come back with an evil report that causes their heart to sink and to be further hardened in unbelief. So this is the evil that they were guilty of. The primary evil of that generation was unbelief. The questioning of God, the doubting of His goodness, and the unwillingness to go forward based on His Word. Like I say, there, there would have been, there, there was an attractiveness to that first generation and all that came to them concerning deliverance, wasn't there? When Moses comes on the scene and there begins to be the, the miracles that attend the, the language of deliverance, and they begin to see kind of God's destruction of Egypt and Moses and Aaron speaking of the time when they were, you know, let my people go. And there would have been an increasing anticipation and excitement about being set free from their bondage and, and their slavery. And every day they kind of sit back and watch the events unfurl. And then finally, of course, they're given permission to go and they go with excitement and with joy. They get to the Red Sea. Immediately then their hearts sink they think, you've brought us out here to die. And, and then, you know, God carves a way through the Red Sea. They go over, as we mentioned last time. They see their enemies wash up on the shore of the Red Sea, confirming to their hearts that that is no longer a threat. They're not going to kind of work their way around the Red Sea, catch up with them in some later time. That's gone. That threat has been eliminated. It's, it's, it's dealt with by God. And so they sing and they praise and they're full of joy, but immediately they, hate, they face hardship in the wilderness. They question where they're going to get water. They question where they're going to get food. They, they question even their contentment about the food that God's providing. All of these things and others. They question the leadership that God has provided. Murmuring, questioning, constantly 
doubting God. And again, those that the apostle is dressing were, were guilty of the same. There would have been an excitement about the message that they were bringing. Certainly among those that he's addressing here, because they, have, they profess faith, they came into the church, they acknowledged Jesus as the Christ. So at, at some point, it gripped their heart with excitement. And so they become the very people that the Lord warns of in the parable of the sower. With an anon, they receive it with joy, he says. They hear the word and their, their hearts are filled with gladness. Really? The Messiah has come? You're telling me that, that all that Old Testament has all been fulfilled and they begin to expound and open on to them from the Old Testament Scriptures? Here, it promised the Messiah. Here we see him, Abraham offering up his son. Here we can see him in this portion and that portion. On on it goes. And you see in your, the, the, the scales drop off their eyes. There's a, an enlightening of the soul. There's a joy that fills the heart. There's like, he's come. He has come. The Messiah has come. And they're filled with joy and they're singing praises. And even every psalm they begin to sing takes on a whole new meaning. But it would have been possible that their interest in the benefits of Christ's work was the foundation of their profession rather than their actual resting in Him Himself. The benefits. Oh, He's fulfilled the types and the shadows. He's, he's shed His blood to put away our sin. He's, he's done. So now I know my sins are forgiven. You take all the benefits But there has not been a real love for the person of Christ himself. This may be one of the greatest dangers. Wanting Christ for his benefits. But there's no real allegiance to Christ himself. No real love for him. And the way this gets tested is through trial and hardship. Because when things are going well, you say, my sins are forgiven. Everything's going well. I trust him. I believe in him. Hey, you should believe in him too. But when you start being tested, when it starts to cost you to be a Christian, then you begin to ask yourself, are these benefits worth it? What happens when the benefits do not seem to outweigh the cost of being a Christian? Think of a Christian follower of Christ. Right? So you're following Christ, but, but what you get exposed to is the sense of, I want the benefits. I want the knowledge of my sins forgiven. I want the peace. I want the rest. I want the sense that I don't have to work for my salvation. I, I want all of that. But it comes at a cost. If I join myself to Christ, if my love for Him causes me to not let go of Him, it may cost me everything. What about when the knowledge of your sins forgiven becomes less important to you than your present survival? 
when they've set up the faggots around the stake and they're calling you to recant of your faith in Christ, is the knowledge of all the benefits of Christ's work enough The Hebrews could go back and say, well, we can, we can return and we can, we can see. We can see now more clearly what the Messiah will do. Uh, clearly, He is going to cleanse away our sins and, and deal with this. They had no doubt greater light in the Old Testament. But, but they, they bring all that knowledge of all the benefits of the Messiah, shine them onto the Old Testament Scriptures, but leave Christ And when I say that, I mean leave Jesus of Nazareth. Walk away from Him because because identifying with Him specifically is costing too much. So this is the warning. Take heed, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief. And you need to discern your heart Do you have an evil heart of unbelief? Which leads on then to the specific way we understand this evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. And this, it not only helps to discern the heart, it prevents departure from Christ. It helps to discern the heart, it prevents departure from Christ. In departing from the living God. Now, you read that and you say, well, preacher, you're saying that this is departing from Christ. But it says in the text, departing from the living God. Here is another, oh, very, very profound way in which the apostle lays before us the deity of Jesus. Think of the context. These people aren't, by their own profession, they are not departing from God. They are not departing from God. By their own profession, they're just going back to their old religion, their old ways. They're acknowledging the fact that this is still the truth. They're they're going to carry on the synagogue. They're going to keep going up to the temple three times a year. They're going to keep reading the Old Testament Scriptures and doing everything that a Jewish person would have done. They're not, in their heads, they're not departing from the living God. That's what they think. But this is the sobering. I, I, I think just, the, just the, 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 the wisdom of the way this is worded and how the apostle, as he brings this message, your departure from Christ, that's what you're doing. You're departing from Christ. You're not considering the apostle and high priest of your profession. Verse 1, you're not doing that. You're moving away. You're not giving thought of Him. And in doing so, you think, you think you're moving away from Jesus of Nazareth. But what you're actually doing is departing from the living God. This then, by implication, lays out again the deity of our Lord Jesus Christ. A departure from Christ is a departure from the living God. And of course, our Lord Jesus dealt with this, didn't He? when he was dealing with the Jews in his own day, back in John chapter 8. If I can go over there just for a moment. I wasn't intending to, but let's see if we can just refresh your memory to that. 
this portion of John 8. So he's speaking to the religious of his day. He's addressing them. And he says in, let's see, verse 44, just to remind you of that well-known verse, Year of your father the devil, and the loss of your father ye will do. Verse 47, He that is of God, as belongs to God, knows God, heareth God's words. Ye therefore hear them not, because ye are not of God. Well, there's, <laughs> there's a very sharp word to the Jew. Verse 48, Then answered the Jews and said unto him, Say we not well that thou art a Samaritan and hast a devil? Jesus answered, I have not a devil, but I honor my father, and ye do dishonor me. And if you go on down, he says in verse 51, Verily, verily, I say unto you, If a man keep my saying, he shall never see death. Then said the Jews unto him, Now we know that thou hast a devil. Abraham is dead, and the prophets. And thou sayest, If a man keep my saying, he shall never taste of death. Art thou greater than our father Abraham, which is dead, and the prophets are dead? Whom, whom makest thou thyself? Jesus answered, If I honor myself, my honor is nothing. It is my father that honoreth me, of whom ye say that he is your God. Yet ye have not known him, but I know him. And if I should say, I know him not, I shall be a liar like unto you. But I know him, and keep his saying, Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it and was glad. Then said the Jews unto him, Thou art not yet fifty years old, and hast thou seen Abraham? Jesus said unto them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, Before Abraham was, I am. Then took they up stones to cast at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple, going through the midst of them, and so passed by. So the issue becomes here about who Jesus Christ is. He is speaking God's words. He is before Abraham. And he is, he is getting to the heart of the issue that they refuse to recognize him for who he is. And in doing so, they give evidence of the fact that they don't know God at all. Because if they knew God, they would know Him and hear Him. Now, the Hebrews that are being addressed by the apostle are in the same predicament because they want to hold on to God. They want to believe that God is still their God. I'm a Jew. Abraham is my father. I have all these benefits and privileges and and I, I thought I wanted what Jesus of Nazareth brings to the table, but now it's costing me too much, so I'm going to move away from him and go back to serving God the way I did. But as I say, you can't ignore Christ and still worship God. So if you've got notions sometime in your head that you want to modify your religion, start talking like some do, I'm, I'm a spiritual person, and yet Jesus Christ is not at the heart of that spirituality. You, you, you don't know God. You don't know God. We're warned then, self-examination is important, asking ourselves, what is it that I'm holding on to? Peter warns in 2 Peter 1 verse 10, Wherefore the rather, brethren, give diligence to make your calling and election sure. And there's a place for that. Why are you here this morning? Why do you profess to be a Christian? Is it because of some hope of heaven and avoiding the wrath of God in hell? 
Or do you value Christ even to your own hurt? Are you able to say as best you know, and though it may not be tested, someday it may be, but do you understand the gospel to the point that to be a Christian means I take Christ, and yes, yes, I get forgiveness, yes, I get adoption into God's family, yes, I am assured of heaven, yes, I am assured I'll never be in hell. These are all benefits. They have their place. We should meditate upon them. They should provoke us to love Him. But if we have that, and we hold on to that, but we're not, we're not really valuing Jesus Christ, it is a false profession you have. So, self-examination. There's also here collective exhortation. Collective exhortation. The apostle proceeds in verse 13. Let's just read these verses. But exhort one another daily, while it is called today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin, for we are made partakers of Christ, if we hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast unto the end. While it is said, Today, if ye will hear his voice, harden not your hearts as in the provocation. So, in this exhortation, this collective exhortation, first we see the activity of the church. What's the activity of the church? Exhort one another. Exhort one another. That is, encourage one another. Minister to one another. Aid one another in positively affirming your profession in Christ. Live your life in such a way that others are aided in their consideration of the apostle and high priest of their profession. Don't live in such a way that discourages and leads people away. Now, exhortation is a peculiar work of the Christian minister, for sure. In 2 Timothy 4, verse 2, Timothy is told by the apostle, preach the word, be instant in season, out of season, that is, no matter whether it's favorable or not, reprove, rebuke, exhort, with all long suffering and doctrine. So this is part of my work, is to exhort, to exhort you. And we gather together and that's what we do. And so in the text you're being told to exhort one another. Part of my duty in doing that is you come here and you get exhortation. Now that exhortation comes in various ways. Sometimes it's the delights of Christ and what He has done. Other times it's the warnings of, of going away from Him and throughout the whole spectrum of what the Word of God deals with, we are to put before you. And you have, you have opportunities, a number of opportunities, you, three times on the Lord's Day, a Wednesday, and then that's at bare minimum, to, to, to be exhorted, to, to be helped, to be encouraged in this manner. And so you're to seize upon those opportunities so that you might be exhorted. Now, as I thought about this, reading over this and thinking of my, my place in this, exhorting one another, exhorting the church, exhorting God's people, I, I came back to something I've dealt with before, just the, the challenge of this in our day. I, there is definitely s- certain unique aspects of what we're facing today. Because 150 years ago, it, the world was very, very different. I'm not talking about morally. That's the fruit of it. But, but the way we functioned was different. 
You gather to God's house and you walk home or you take your horse and cart home or whatever and through the week, church was like an event because you never, you never really received information like this except on the Lord's Day, largely speaking. You gather, you sing, you hear the word read and preached to you and it's very distinct. Whereas now, you're bombarded by people who are sitting in their own little pulpits, pontificating constantly to you, vying for your attention. News broadcasters, politicians, all the rest. And you can tune into it. Podcasts, radio, television, internet, you, you name it. There's constant, constant bombardment. I've mentioned this before as well. Even interaction, the human interaction with music. You couldn't enjoy music, as it were, unless it was in person or in your head. You, you didn't get to constantly be wired up with your, your, your AirPods or whatever and constantly listening to music. And I say it's not all bad. I'm not saying it's all bad. I'm just saying this is unique in the history of humanity. It didn't function like this before. And with it comes constant distraction. So you hear from me and then immediately your mind gets cluttered through the rest of the week with all sorts of news and information. All sorts of mediums that are vying for your attention. And you don't get to muse and consider and mull over and apply what you hear. So I was reading this again and thinking, the task is impossible for a minister today. That the world is so different, its dynamic has so altered from the course of history. But I, I, you wonder at the spiritual condition of people. It's not a surprise. Because though you get, you know, an hour of preaching or whatever, it doesn't get to settle into the soul. Now, some of you do. I know. You think about it. You come back to me. You tell me about how you were meditating, how it helped you, and all of that is encouraging. But we're definitely dealing with a challenging, distracted age. Some of it is unavoidable. Some of it I think we have to consider, is this best practice for me? But it's not just the minister. It's everyone. The activity of the church. Exhort one another. This is a corporate business. This means all of us in some way are exhorting, are encouraging, are provoking and helping one another. That means you don't get to be an island onto yourself. You, you get to be involved in helping other people. Now, you do that in all sorts of ways. Your very presence here exhorts. It makes a difference. It makes a difference. Just being here, then your conversation, your inquiry. How are you doing, brother? How's your week been? Do you want to get together for coffee? Would you like to come over for dinner? How's your son? How's your daughter? How's your mother? Heard about them? And you, you, you inquire and you talk and you converse and, and it deepens and it spreads and you, the whole pattern of it is what is being dealt with here. Exhorting one another. All the one another's of Scripture. Caring for one another. Loving one another. Praying for one another. Comforting one another. Admonishing one another. Edifying one another. All of this and so on is dealt with in Scripture. Your interactions, your, your, your interactions aid, or at least ought to aid. Now be careful with that, of course. Because you could do the opposite. You could interact and discourage your brother or sister. You come to them with woes and criticisms and whatever else that are unhelpful. 
So, we're all to be engaged in this. We're all to be trying to help each other. Now, you, this, is, this is for all of us. You have something to contribute. You have something to add into the lives of other people. Don't sit week after week, huddled away in your corner of life and never, ever interact with other people. Don't do it. It's disobedience to this text. It is sin, therefore. And you're, you're missing out on the blessing. Now, there are limitations. When he says exhort one another, he is not, he's not suggesting that it is, if we do this right, no one will ever fall away. Sadly, it doesn't matter what is done or how good a church is, people will still fall away. So let me say this. Let me add to this, exhort one another. If your idea is, I fell away because no one took an interest in me, or I fell away because whatever other reason that's outside of yourself, I want you to be aware the primary, the primary mode and responsibility falls on your shoulders. I was thinking of this just this morning as I was dealing with Leviticus 14 with the young people and going through that and coming to the end where it deals with leprosy in the household, in the building. The priest could not go into every household and examine the walls of every household every so often. He couldn't do it. It depended upon the head of the house seeing something on the wall and then coming to the priest and inquiring whether or not there may be a leprosy. Just Leviticus 14.35, He that owneth the house shall come and tell the priest, saying, It seemeth to me there is, as it were, a plague in the house. He has to acknowledge it. So there has to be this honest appraisal of our own hearts. There has to be an awareness of self-responsibility in my walk with God. And so the exhorting one another is, is a curbing to help with that. But it cannot eliminate people falling away if they will not take heed to their own lives. The activity of the church, exhorting one another. I pray God will help us with this. I, I think we always need to be aware that we can that this is part of our role. You don't just come in here each Lord's Day and walk away. You're called to this. You're called to this. All of you. You say, I'm a quiet person. I'm, a, I'm an introvert. Look, find a way to overcome it. <laughs> just, just as the angry person doesn't get to say it, it's just the way I am. The introvert doesn't get to say, it's just the way I am. Find a way. Push yourself out of your comfort zone. The regularity of the task. Daily. Exhort one another daily. Not that the message, you're going to each and every person every day with a message and saying a word of encouragement. But the idea is it's within all daily life. You can't go to everyone you know every single day with a message and exhort them in some way. That's, that's not the idea, but it's, it's, it's bringing this aspect into daily life. Daily pulling this in where you interact with other believers and endeavor to encourage them. You have also here the vulnerability of any professor, lest any of you... In other words, everyone's vulnerable. Everyone has to look, lest any of you... So let me apply that across the board. Any of you may fall foul of what's going on here in departing from Christ. Any of you. You say, preacher, I have been a Christian for 60 years. 
There's no possible way I could fall away now. Oh, really? You could. You could. Just talking this past week of someone that has struggled and fallen away, not, not here, but just a reminder of the vulnerability. Any of you, any of you, we can be deceived by sin. That's what it's saying, isn't it? Lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. So, so we, we begin to make excuses for it, don't we? We, we start seeing sin in our lives and we, we begin to reshape it. This, this happens a lot with those that come out of fundamentalism, doesn't it? They're told certain things were sinful. And then they adopt an idea, well, really those things are preferences. They're not actually sin. And in some areas, we could certainly say, yes, that, that may apply. There are various things that may be attributed to being sinful that are, that are not sinful. That, that certainly has gone on. But in the response to that and the looking at the areas of their life, there's this overreaction. They begin to sort of reshape things and practices that were good. You say, our parents forced us to do this. They forced us to go to church twice on a Sunday. Well, I am enjoying my liberty in Christ by not. Well, now you're sinning. You're sinning. You're not enjoying liberty that Christ gives. You're sinning against the Lord. And you can go down through the list of things. Oh, I was forced when I was growing up to do this. I'm not going to do it. I was, I was forced to... Oh, I'm not going to go down there. But you, you can do it. If you, if you grew up in that and you were there, and you know, you know how easily the pendulum swings right to the other side. And you say, I, I, am, I am set free by Christ. And that freedom, you actually, you actually, your definition of freedom becomes bondage. Becomes bondage. In fact, as one man noted to me before, that the people who live under this power of their past and trying to live a different way than how they were brought up, trying to prove a point that the liberty they've now found, they're still living under the same power they were living under before. It's still the thoughts of the same group of people or the parents or whatever it might be. It's still them that you're, you're still under their sway. And you're in bondage to it and you've pushed the other way. Lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. Oh, this, this is the devil's work, isn't it? Hath God said? Did he really say it? You see, here's what God knows. God knows the day you eat thereof, you'll be as gods. And so he reframes and reshapes and refashions, and you begin to say, hey, it's really not that bad. The people who were beginning to not assemble with other believers that's dealt with in chapter 10 of this book, those people were beginning to say, well, I, you know, I just, I just went, I went over here, for, I went to this synagogue for a while, and I wanted to engage in this particular Jewish feast and festival uh, that, that we don't practice here. I just wanted to go over there. 
And, and you start reframing and you're being deceived. You're being deceived. This is the scary thing about deception. And the deception of sin is that you can't see it. And this is why then it takes a body because the problem of the individual is he can't see his deception. He can't see how he's drifting. And so it takes a body as a means. God goes, brother, what are you doing? Why are you going there? Why are you listening to that? Why are you doing this thing? We are all vulnerable. I'm not above the day that Someone comes to me and says, you're sinning. The authenticity of every Christian. Verses 14 and 15. We've seen the activity of the church, the regularity of the task, the vulnerability of any professor, and the authenticity of every Christian. Verse 14 and 15. We are made partakers of Christ if we hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast unto the end while it is said, today, if you will hear his voice, harden not your hearts as in the provocation. The problem was when warnings came to the Israelites, they wouldn't hearken to God's voice. They wouldn't listen. And so now a warning is being given. A warning to hold fast. A warning to take heed. A warning to remain, remain steadfast in what? Being partakers of of Christ. You get partakers of the Messiah. You get to enjoy the benefits of the Messiah. You get to all the things that you want that Messiah brings. Again, going back to it, they're, they're moving into this, this direction where they want, they want to maintain the benefits within Judaism, leaving Jesus of Nazareth aside. But they can't do it. They have to have Christ if they're to have the benefits. And they're to hold the beginning, what they did at the beginning, continue to the end. You have to remain here, worshiping Christ, loving Christ, serving Christ, praying in the name of Christ. You ditch any of this and you're lost. You're lost. I mean, everything, all, all the worship, all the worship was done in the name of Christ. That was what was distinct. They're preaching in the name of Christ. They're praying in the name of Christ. Their singing becomes very much in light of Christ. They begin to write hymns because they're more Christological and more direct within the, the, the understanding of the New Testament. And perseverance to the end, holding where we were at the start to the end, is crucial. Fair weather faith is no faith at all. And thirdly, very quick, historic recollection. Historic recollection. In verses 16 through 19, then there is this recollection. And see it in two ways. The reality of a divided church and the reason for a divided church. The reality of this divided church is verses 16 and 17. For some, note that, when they had heard, did provoke. Howbeit not all, so you have some and not all, note that, that came out of Egypt by Moses. And then the question is asked, with whom was he grieved for years? Was it not with them that had sinned, whose carcasses fell in the wilderness? So who are the some? Who are the some who provoked, having heard, 
there were those that fell in the wilderness. It wasn't all. And so those in the Israelites were divided people. They were divided. Some responded to God's word. Some did not. You read it and you lament. You think Joshua, Caleb, some argue that because the Levites were considered separate and distinct from the main people, maybe some of the Levites also entered in. It's a discussion for another time. But it was very small. That first generation perished. Their carcasses were left in the wilderness. And so there it was very stark, very stark. There were only a handful, just a small handful, that made it in because they continued to believe. Now you take that and you ask yourself, what does that say about the church today? But we are a divided body. The visible church is always divided. This is why I will continue to preach and exhort the gospel to those of you in unbelief. While I stand behind this pulpit, I will not get to a point where I'll make assumptions that because you walk through these doors, you don't need to hear the application and the urgent appeal of the gospel to you in unbelief. You will hear it. The church is divided. It's divided this morning. Some of you believe. And you will keep believing in Jesus Christ even if you lost everything. It doesn't matter. Lose reputation. Lose wealth. Lose 401k. Lose your house. Lose your family. You will lose it all and still rest and trust in Christ through it. Nothing, nothing will change your opinion of Him. But others of you may be fair weather. You're here because it doesn't cost you much. Someday it might. It's going to cost you. It's going to cost you like it costs other believers. Like it costs that young man we heard about in Baghdad a few weeks back. He lost his life there as a missionary in Iraq. It may cost you everything. And the reason why are we divided? It's not because of what football team you support or what school you went to or what country you come from, verse 18 and 19. They could not enter in because of unbelief. He swore that they should not enter into his rest those that would not believe. So, this is the crucial issue. Faith in Christ. Faith in Christ. Do you have it? Do you have faith in Christ this morning? You say, preacher, I prayed a prayer. Well, again, we've, we've already kind of scraped away this. Let me just lay it out again. Are you prepared to follow Christ, trust Christ, own Christ, speak of Christ, preach of Christ to your hurt? If he takes away your health, you will praise him. If he takes away your wealth, you will praise him. If he takes away your family, you will praise him. If he, whatever happens, if he takes away your nation, you will praise him. Takes away your job, you will praise him. Takes away your house, you will praise him. You will praise him. Because it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. 
this, 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 this light affliction, which is but for a moment, it works for us something that they, only the eye of faith can see, entering into the glory of Christ, the presence of the one who suffered unimaginably, enduring sufferings with him, for him, praising him all the way. Is this the kind of faith you have? If not, you will be found out. You will be exposed. May God help us. Let's bow together in prayer. You may ask me, how do I make sure I have this faith? I say to you, you lay hold on Jesus Christ and you see what he has done for you as a sinner and you become absolutely dumbfounded that the God of glory would take on flesh and die for you. And you weigh that in light of all the things you go through. You weigh that in light of all the hardships and all the threats and all the uncertainties of life and you say, but Jesus Christ, the Son of God, lived and died for me and rose again from the grave. He is more precious than anything. More precious than the king's ransom. More precious than the affection of a spouse. More precious than the world's attention and praise. Look on to him. He is precious. Lord Jesus, help us. Help us to consider thee, the apostle and high priest of our profession. Help us to give real thought as to who thou, thou art and what thou hast done. And when the storms prevail upon our souls, when the news comes that our livestock has been killed, that our children have been killed, that our entire possessions have been stripped from us, and all that we have seems to be gone, we will fall down in the dust and praise the one who giveth and taketh away. We pray for this kind of faith. Oh God, let none fall away here in this place. So may this word abide in every heart. May it live on in our souls. May it caution the drifting. May it call in the unsaved. Oh, have mercy, we pray. May the grace of our Lord Jesus, the love of God our Father, and the fellowship of the Spirit be with all thy people now and evermore.